how many of you, let me see your hands, have been watching some of the Olympics in Tokyo? Yeah? How many of you love to see good competition, eh? Especially with our you know, cyclists, we've done an amazing thing. Friends, Kiwis are pros at evaluating performance. So much so that we know very little about grace. The Kiwi ethic, work ethic, is this. You get what you pay for. You get what you deserve. And most Kiwis could fill this in very easily. There's no such thing as a... A what? A free lunch. With that type of mentality, friends, it makes it very difficult for us to relate to the fact that our God is amazing and His grace is sufficient for us. Few understand, like David, and the first verse on your outline here, few understand this verse. You, O Lord, are a compassionate and a gracious God. We're on the performance track, not the grace track. So friends, right at the beginning, let's get some terms defined. What is grace? What does grace mean? Grace means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. So God gives me, that means, what I need, not what I deserve. That's a good way to remember that. God gives me what I need, not what I deserve. And the Bible says that God's grace is also unconditional. We won't go through all of that this morning. But it's also unlimited. It doesn't run out. I like that. And also, it's unending. It also tells us that it's God's nature, and that's what we're looking at in this series, to bless undeserving people. In fact, he loves to do it. Now, let's remember why we're doing this series. We need to focus on the true God. Because what we believe about God, what we think about God, is the most important thing about us. Let me say it again. What we believe about God, what we think about him, said A.W. Tozer, is the most important thing about us. Why? Here's why. Number one, thoughts have consequences. God is the biggest thing you could ever think about. And therefore, God has the greatest consequence in your life and mine. So as we move on down this, Notice this next verse. God, this is the truth. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He wants to be gracious to you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You've gone through a very hard time. It's his pleasure. It's not something you have to wring out of him. He loves to be gracious to you. So this morning... I will look at three ways that God's amazing grace will make a difference in your life permanently. Three ways. Number one, God's saving grace, his saving grace removes and resolves my guilt. It resolves it. It solves the problem. It untangles the impossible knot. So God's saving grace resolves my guilt. And since nobody is perfect, and everybody mis makes mistakes, even the Pope, even Mother Teresa, even pastors, everybody makes mistakes. We all have guilt. 
Now the Bible says clearly, as we know, all have sinned. And if we say we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves. Therefore, because we have guilt, and if our heart is soft, we feel guilty. But notice Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says this, by the death of Christ, we are set free. Not by reading Tony Robbins or some self-help psycho babble. It's by the death of Christ that we are set free. That is, and then he defines it. This is the deal. That our sins are forgiven. How great is the grace, you want to circle that, how great is the grace of God which he gave to us in such a large measure. He was magnanimous towards us. Not scroogey or begrudgingly. His grace towards us is Huge, it is large, and there's a scripture. This is a fundamental truth of Christianity, and some here need to hear that again today. His grace towards you is magnificent. Jesus Christ has already paid for your sins. All you have to do is accept it. There is a part there where you play. Now, because of God's grace, what are we free from? Well, we're free from condemnation. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us all, I like that word, all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, and, this is a nice part, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, that's a key scripture. We are free from guilt. There's no reason, 1 John 1, 9 again, to run around with a bunch of guilt and to be worried about that. There is no reason to live in guilt. And that is great news. So God's saving grace resolves and removes my guilt by forgiving it because of what he did on the cross. And therefore, we are free this is very important from eternal separation from God. That barrier has been removed. Now, if you've experienced that, you know what real freedom is. Not some fake freedom. Here, go to Fiji for a while and escape your problems. Guess what? You come back. And actually, first of all, you take you to Fiji. So your problems go with you. And when you come back, you're back into the same deal. Real freedom. Is found in Jesus Christ. He said, I have come to set you free and to give you life and life more abundantly. So God's saving grace removes the guilt from our lives and he forgives us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by God's grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. You need to circle that. This is not you. This is not the performance track. It is not you. But it is God's gift. A gift is something that's given freely. There is nothing to boast of. Since it's not the result of your own efforts. This is the grace. Undeserved favor. I used to tell, tell my kids, the way you remember grace is just a simple five-letter acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Therefore, because of that verse in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, there's nothing to boast of. 
Since it's not the result of your own efforts, therefore salvation is based on God's mercy, not on my merit. It's based on God's mercy, which is an attribute of his character. He never changes like that. God is a merciful God. Or, put it this way, salvation is based on God's promises, not my performance. And that's an incredible stress reliever. The Apostle Paul says there, you don't earn it. It's almost so comical sometimes, I think, the way some people try to get along with God. They try to appease Him. They try to prove themselves worthy to God. I'm not so bad, such a bad bloke. And they try to earn his forgiveness. It's almost comical. First of all, some people are, they, we have, it's called salvation by sincerity. And what that means is that it doesn't matter what you believe, friend. That's what they'll try and tell you. As long as you're sincere. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. A lot of nodding heads. Now the problem with that is very simple. You can be sincerely wrong. Pilots have been known to fly into the sides of mountains, thinking they were sincerely in a different position. Or I could pick up a glass of arsenic and drink it, thinking it's water, and I would be sincerely dead. Some, though, on the other hand, try to earn salvation or God's favor by not doing a bunch of stuff. This is called salvation by subtraction. Subtraction, we're back to mathematics. Well, I don't do that. You don't do this and you don't do that, and maybe then God will forgive your sins if I don't do these things. But as I've said many times in this church before, if all a Christian life is is a bunch of do's and don'ts, then anybody that's dead qualifies because dead men don't do much. Right? Then some try to earn service by uh, salvation by service. Well, I'll work real hard and I'll earn it. I'll earn God's favor. That's it. They'll never probably say that, but by their actions and by the fact that they're frazzled, that's what they're doing. Let me illustrate it this one way. My mum grew up in New Zealand. Well, she, she, she brought us here in New Zealand. And she had three boys. These three boys were like three mini terrorists. <laughs> Ian, Pat and Mike were the worst terrorists, of course. I was always keeping them in line. But mum ran a pretty tight ship. She had to work. She had no money. We bought her lipsticks for Christmas. She was that poor. She had poor health, she had eczema, asthma, migraine headaches, bleeding skin, and she had no qualifications. So in other words, for this to work, what we had to do is we had to pull weight. We had to row the boat at mum's place. What that meant is, before we go anywhere, there was a list like this that had to be done. Are the vegetables peeled and chopped? Is the dinner in the oven? Are the lawns mowed? Is the house clean? And I mean clean, not like people clean today. We had a carpet sweeper first. We dusted. We had a whole school on how to, how to clean. 
carpet sweeper, vacuums, dust, damp dust, none of this just flick all the dust around stuff. Even scrub the kitchen floor on your hands and knees. We did that. And unfortunately, we had a liner that had grooves in it. So anyway, long story short, we had a list, a laundry list as long as our arm, nearly every day that we had to do. Good training. But here's the deal. That got old, as it were, for young teenage boys. You can imagine that. Could you imagine that? Then one day, something happened in my life. This man's daughter came into my life. Kimberly. And it was Thursday night. Who cares about the long list of stuff? I nothing different about the jobs. Exactly the same. In fact, anything else I can do, mum? Because there's a new motivation inside. A love in my life had come in. And it transformed the things that were formerly drudgery into anything else, mum? Anything? Yes, mum. How I have, do you want me to jump, mum? Because something had changed from the inside. Get it? Before, it was like a cattle prod of the blessed assurance. Now, it was, I couldn't wait. In fact, my jobs were done on time and beautifully. The difference was, it was an internal motivation rather than externally imposed tasks. Works are the fruit, not the root. Both are important. James says... Faith without works is dead. Some of us have forgotten that. And you end up being a greasy gracie out there. Both are important. But the root is faith. The fruit is works. Then there's salvation by comparison. This is very insidious. I don't need to become a Christian, somebody may say, because I'm better than you name it, dot, dot, dot. The fact of the matter is, you may well be better, however you define that, than so-and-so, and even better than me, and you probably are. But here's the deal. God does not judge you according to me. I'm not the standard, and either are you or the other guy. Actually, the Bible says God himself is the standard, and therefore we all fall short. So this is foundational in the Christian life. That's God's saving grace, and that resolves my guilt. So if you could save yourself, the cross would be completely unnecessary. There would have been no reason for Jesus to die, but you can't and I can't. The most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life is not the house, not the salary, not the person you'll even marry. That is not the most important the most important decision you will ever make is whether you accept God's saving grace, which is provided freely in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, do that today. It's the smartest and most long-lasting decision you will ever make. But it doesn't stop at that point. God's saving grace resolves my guilt. My past is forgiven. That's justification. That's just as if I have never sinned. That's what happened back there. But point number two is God's strengthening grace renews my life. God's strengthening grace renews my life. So God's grace helps me to become the person that he wants me to be. I cooperate with the Spirit. It renews me. And this is what it'll do. It will restructure your priorities. That's evidence of Christ in you 
moving you towards becoming like a son. So God loves you, don't get me wrong, just the way you are. But he loves you way too much to leave you the way you are. And he will change you from the outside, from the inside out, not from the outside in, from the inside out. Interesting passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9. Starts off, it says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Now, notice this. To resist and to not get carried away by strange teachings, believers must be familiar with the essential teachings of Christ. And in this case, in the first century, there were teachers trying to attack the fundamental principles of the gospel. And one of the fundamental principles of the gospel is this. Salvation because of the grace of God. And these guys were trying to enslave believers back into an old system of outward compliance. But they never had the power to change the heart. And then he goes on. He says, do not be carried away by very strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? What is it? By grace. Not by foods outward, though which... Those who were thus occupied were not benefited. It didn't do them any good. The external stuff. And the same principle applies today. The biggest problem in Christianity is this. People start with a relationship with Jesus, and then they revert to rules and routine. When you get married, let me tell you, that relationship is hot. But if you're not careful, it'll turn into ritual. And routine and the relationship and the romance disappears. Same deal in Christianity. People start with being in love with Jesus, in love with God, and then they're tempted to fall back into religious syndromes and regulation. Yet the Bible says here your spiritual strength comes as a gift from God, not from ceremonial rules. So a brand new Christian is excited again about his newfound love with the Lord. But then, just like Paul said to the Galatians, it started well, but ended up getting dragged back. Now, if that's not the way to live a Christian life, how do you? Well, Colossians 2.6, next verse. Just as you receive Christ the Lord, continue to live in him. Continue. Circle that word, Continue. The way you became a Christian is the way you continue as a Christian. Therefore, friends, all spiritual growth in your life is by grace. Is by grace. God's amazing grace. So consider how you become a Christian. Do you become a Christian by promising to be perfect? Uh-uh. How about by doing good? You become a Christian by saying, God, I'll do good the rest of my days. No, of course not. You become a Christian by simply receiving God's grace and letting it come into your life and transform you from the inside out. And then the Bible says, you must grow in grace. Grace is something you grow in. Here it is, 2 Peter 3.18, the first part of that. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
grow. That's a spiritual imperative. Power by the Spirit. The Bible says God is working in your life. For it is God, here's the root of it, it is God who is working in you, both to will, that's to give you the desire to do the right thing, and to work for his good pleasure. Not your good pleasure, not mine, but his. So every time you get a, a sense of, oh, I need to, I'd love to, or I need to get with the, in the Bible, or I need to pray, we can't even take credit for that. That's God's Spirit willing you. The question is, will you? Will you cooperate with the Spirit? You may be washing the car, and you may be right down at the hubcap, and all of a sudden, you get a sense in your heart of the Spirit talking to you to say, and drawing you, forget the hubcap, pull aside and talk with him then. Imagine, I'm, uh, let's turn this around to something that you may understand. When we're sitting here, I'm home doing the hubcap, and all of a sudden my wife calls it would not be a good move to say, honey, I'm just working on these hubcaps. The hubcaps are more important than my wife? I don't think so. When you sense God's Spirit pulling your heart, stop whatever you're doing. You could be in the middle of a spreadsheet. Stop. You may, uh, I have to be careful how you do this if you're cutting hair. I'm just thinking of some of our hairdressers here. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Don't resist the Spirit when He calls you. Otherwise, that relationship will grow cool. So grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, for it is God who works in you to will. That's him. That's him doing that. And to work his good pleasure through your life. So the more you trust God, the more God will work through you. And the faster you're going to grow. Being transformed by his spirit and his grace. So God's firstly... His saving grace resolves my guilt. Secondly, God's strengthening grace renews my life. This is a whole process. That was justification. This process is called sanctification, making you become more like Jesus. And you'll find the urge is from within. It's the inner desire to do the right thing. And then number three, God's sustaining grace relieves, this is a big one, because you're going to need this. If you don't need it now, you're going to need this. God's sustaining grace relieves my hurt. It relieves my hurt and it helps me keep going when I feel like quitting. When I'm in pain and I want to give up. Paul in Corinthians had a problem that was a constant problem. There's been no end of conjecture about this, and we can't be dogmatic, but for my money, he had problems with his eyes. There's other places where it says, if you could, you'd have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. That tells me there's an issue going on here. Three times it was that bad. Three times you prayed, Lord, take this pain out of my life. You know what happened? God said no. And that's an answer to prayer. It wasn't the one he wanted. But instead, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, my grace is all you need. Circle that. Stop being so self-reliant. For my power is strongest when you are weak. So God says, 
I am going to give you grace. And grace, is, in this case, is what you need to keep on going. That sustaining power. If Paul prayed and didn't get the answer he initially sought, what does that mean to us? Should I pray about my problem? Of course you should. The Bible tells us to pray about our problems in Hebrews 4.16. It says this. Notice what it says. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace. A couple of ways you can receive this. We'll talk about that soon. To help us. We need grace in our time of need. So when you have a problem and you're going through a crisis and there's some stress and tension going on and you pray God's for God's strength, one or two things are going to happen. One of two. Number one. And I've seen both. That's just real. Anybody that tells you it's option one all the time is delusional. That is not. They need to read the Bible more. Read the scriptures. Number one is God may well remove the pain. And he's done that sometime in my life. That is his supplying grace. Or number two, he may leave that pain in your life, in that situation. And then if he does that, like Paul, he says he will give you sustaining grace. Sustaining grace to handle it so you don't collapse under it. To take you through the problem. Now friends, here's the honest truth. We would never learn anything, and neither will your children, if they don't have problems. In fact, Jesus said to his own disciples, Hey guys, whilst you're on this earth, what did he say? You will have trouble. Oh, I don't like trouble. Well, guess what? That's not reality. Jesus is a realist, the ultimate realist. He's the ultimate reality, and he says, whilst you are on this earth, you will have troubles that will come into your life. Anybody had any of those apart from me? Huh? Right. But then, yeah, I love the last part. He says, but be of good cheer. Keep your chin up. Because I've overcome the world. It'll get going. It'll get hard here for a while. But he says, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's my part of the bargain, he says. Friends, we learn so much more through pain then we did do, do by pleasure. I wish it wasn't that way. But somehow, God has engineered this life like that. Again, check out the disciples. See what happened. See how they handled it. Sometimes God leaves the pain in our lives and the problem. But then he will give us the grace to see it through. And then and only then do you realize like Corrie ten Boom did in a Nazi prison camp. When God is all you've got, then you realize God is all you need. We think we need all this other stuff. We don't. We're not taking any of it with us. Now, what happens if I don't depend upon God's grace? When I face a hurt or a devastating disappointment, which some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or you're in some crisis or some stress, and I don't depend upon God's grace. What happens? Hebrews 12, 15 gets at this. Be careful that none of you fails to respond to the grace of God. For if you do, this is a choice, 
there can spring up in you a bitter spirit. Think of it this way. A bitter attitude which can poison the lives of many others and yourself, by the way. It starts with you and it goes out like a, a, a branches of negativity which can poison the lives of many others if you don't respond to the grace of God. So when you try to handle the hurt in your own, it, what, I'm, what it's saying there is that it's very easy to get bitter. And God does not want you to be bitter. That's not his plan. But if you don't respond to the grace of God, it is an easy human condition to succumb to bitterness. And resentment is the result of trying to handle all your problems on your own power. Some people become cynical. And that's a real sad day to see a cynical person. Or critical. You hear it out of their mouth. Criticism, negativity just flows. And then eventually it turns into something called bitterness. And they say basically, why me? As a pastor, I talk with hurting people often. And I've noticed something interesting. You can take two people and put them in exactly the same situation. One of them will become devastated by the situation. And they become resentful, they become angry, and they become poisoned by their bitter attitude. And they kind of shrivel up. The other one, number two, they have a sweet spirit. So how is it that some have overwhelming problems and they're under increased pressure an unusual pain in their lives, and even if it's not their own fault, and yet they retain a sweet spirit. How is that possible? I'll tell you why. Because the second person, those people, they're relying on the sustaining power and grace of God. See, some of you in this room have been hurt very deeply back there in the past. And when you remember it, it still hurts. Just the very thought of what happened back there can sometimes make you tense. So how do you get rid of a hurtful memory? A hurtful experience like that? How do you do that? Well, from personal experience, there's only one way I know. The antidote to a painful memory is to experience the grace of God in your life, which bursts forth like beautiful, satiating water in a hot desert. You receive God's grace, and only then can you be gracious to others. And you can offer it to the offending person and let them go. In other words, it gives you the strength not to hold on to the hurt. And to offer forgiveness to the person and to let them go for your own sake. Friends, some of you need God's strengthening grace in your life today. Because there are things in your life that you'd like to change. There's some weaknesses there that you know about and God knows. He's not surprised. There's some habits that you don't seem to have the power or the strength to overcome by yourself. 
and to make those changes permanent. If that's you, you need God's strengthening and sustaining grace. And some of you are saying, I've been holding on to that hurt, that emotional pain. Maybe it's, you've got physical pain, which is racking your body. So how in the world do I get that grace into my life that I need? There's only one thing that you need to do to get God's grace in your life. And here it is, super simple. You need to admit that you need it. You need to admit it. That's it. Admit that I need God's grace and God in my life. Notice this verse. This verse has been a verse in our family since my kids were young. God resists the proud. Circle that. He resists them. If you don't want to be resisted by God, who in their right mind would want to be resisted by God? But he gives grace to the humble. So as long as I am an independent sausage, I can handle it. I don't need anybody to help me. You're in trouble. Because you are just relying on you. And I've noticed a self-made person normally worships their maker themselves. I don't need anybody else. I've got it under control. Really? How's that going for you? So as long as you have that attitude, you don't have it under control, I'd like to submit to you. And that's why you've still got the problem. All you've got to do is admit it. And this is how it sounds. God, I'm not making it by myself. I'm not making it on my own. I wish I could say that, but you know I'm not fooling you. This is the value of confession. A long lost virtue. Some of you in this room today and listening online have a bad habit to break. And the first step to breaking a bad habit is to tell God. Now you can have bad habits that your spouse knows about. You can have bad habits you try and hide. One of the hardest habits I found when I became a Christian that God had to work on my tongue for. You know what was? And some of you have had the same thing too. Lying. Lying. And really, basically, lying is you're afraid to stand up for the truth. But God can take that when you give it to him, and he can turn it right around. One of the great hallmarks of maturity is you're not afraid to speak the truth. So if you need some help with that, you ask the Holy Spirit. And he will put a sentry on your mouth so that you don't say anything before it goes past him. But ask him, admit you need help. Then somebody says, well, when I tell God, I get it. He's not shocked. He already knows. And he just wants me to admit it. I get that. But then he goes further in the book of James. This is Jesus' half-brother. And he says, then go tell it to somebody else. What? Yes. You say, but if I admit this bad problem or hidden sin in my life, that's pretty humbling. Uh-huh. That's the whole point. Do you want to be humble or do you want to be proud? Do you want to be humble and get victory over it? 
or you may be proud and stumble. The key to getting God's power in your life is to change and to change that bad habit begins with humbly admitting it to somebody and humbly admitting to God you need help. Some of you listening to this today don't want to admit this, but you have a serious marriage problem. And you're hiding it. And you're faking it. And you're pretending that things are just okay. And that's why things aren't getting any better. You're pretending. Some of you are parents and you've got rebellious children. And it's killing you. And you're thinking, I don't want anybody to know about this. What's going on in our family? And that's why you're dying inside. Until you come to the point where you say, well, I'm just like every other normal parent. Just like everybody else. We've got some problems in our family. And you know what? That's honest. God was a perfect father. And you go back to Genesis, and you see if he had some problems in his family. And not just his first family, but actually his, the grandchildren and the children of, of, of the first Adam and Eve. Well, first of Adam and Eve blew it. And then you just take a look at the fight that was going on. You think your kids fight. Think about Cain and Abel. Until you say, I'm like a normal parent. And by the way, every family has problems. Any family that doesn't have problems, again, they need to come and be prayed for. They're lying. It's like people say, well, we don't fight. That's not true. They're lying. Because two imperfect people, right? cannot possibly come together and form a perfect marriage. It takes time. And God will use your spouse to work out of you your selfishness and mine. So again, let me just repeat this in case we're confused. Nobody has a perfect family. Everybody has problems. So at some point along that line, you come to the point where you go, okay, I get it. I need to share that with somebody. I need some help. So find a trusted Christian friend or a trusted small group who can keep their mouths shut and pray and talk to the Lord about it and be honest. And then you deal with the hurt in your life and God's grace will begin to flow and change will finally begin to happen. So once you receive God's grace, what do you do? Two last things on your outline. The Bible says you do two things after you've humbled yourself and God pours his grace into your life. Remember this, ver- uh, this, this axiom, be humble lest you stumble. Be humble lest you stumble. What do you do? First of all, God says he wants you then, once you've received his grace, to be gracious to other people. To be gracious. When God's grace and power enable you to endure suffering in hard times, then we in turn become the Holy Spirit's comforters to others who will indeed endure similar situations. Two Corinthians one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's where I found my comfort in him. Who comforts us in our affliction 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So just pass it on. The Phillips translation of 1 Peter 4.10 says this, God wants you to be a dispenser of his grace that you have received. Pass it on. See, graciousness is in very short supply today in our culture. Most people are just flat out self-centered. And once they're through there, they don't tell anybody else, they don't help anybody else with the grace that God has given them. And one of the reasons why there are so few people that are gracious is because they don't feel graced and forgiven themselves. I've always found hurt people hurt people. So today, as we move on from this, could you just pop the next slide up, please, mate? Thanks. The second thing you need to do is you need to tell others about God's grace. Don't just keep it to yourself. Share that with others who are feeling the pain. Does somebody come to your mind? Is there somebody that you can help with the grace that God has given you? Through the, through the things that you have suffered back here, God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a hurt. He wants to take that hurt and for you to use that to help others because you've been gifted by God's grace. I want to pray for you for a second. Father, I thank you for the people that are sitting here today who have known your grace. It's come into their lives and Lord, you have helped them. You've healed them. You've healed their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use them, Father, to be a dispenser of your grace. Father, for those who are stuck in a hurtful habit or something that's just destroying their peace, I pray for Heavenly Father that you would use them. That you would change them from the inside out. That, Lord, they would know what it is to know your Holy Spirit's comfort. Father, thank you for your sense of your presence here today. I pray for those who have been stuck. Some of them for years. That Lord, you would use your word today as a sharp two-edged sword. To divide and to clarify and to convict. Divide fact from fiction. Reality, Lord, from delusion. And may your spirit conform us to the image of your Son. I thank you, Father, for our time together around your precious word. Thank you for your grace, your saving grace, your sustaining grace, your supplying grace. Thank you, Father. Amen.